Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Cry Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. And today I'm going to be telling you guys part three about Dr. Sam Shepard and Marilyn Shepard. Today, I am still drinking because we are recording this one after we recorded the last. Nonetheless, it is a blood orange wheat from Six Sense Brewing Co. A beer, that is. And I still have my three drinks that I had in part two. My... Island something smoothie from Smoothie King, pink grapefruit water seltzer thing, and it is officially cold hazelnut coffee, not hot. So I guess it has changed a little bit. It's also kind of watered down, so it's kind of a little depressing, but it's in this cool maze mug. That is a cool mug. I was looking at that earlier and I was trying to figure out what it was. In case you guys don't know, Erica always needs more mugs. She doesn't have enough. Yes, I could use a couple more what am i supposed to drink out of i'm definitely not the one of the 30 that you already have 100 have more than 30 but yes so grab whatever you're drinking and let's dive on in We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for a Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. Welcome back for our third and final part about Dr. Sam Shepard and his wife, Marilyn Shepard. So if you guys have not listened to part one and part two, go back and listen to those. Quick overview and recap. In the first episode, we learned that Marilyn Shepard was brutally murdered in her home. Dr. Sam Shepard was home asleep in a different room. He kind of overheard, went and tussled with whoever he believes to have killed Marilyn Shepard. But detectives didn't believe that. They focused right on Dr. Shepard, who maybe wasn't the most faithful in his marriage. And they went to trial. And Dr. Sam Shepard was sentenced to life in prison after he was found guilty of second degree murder. And that's about where we pick up. I ended the episode with saying that he had a great legal team who was working on pursuing multiple appeals. They submitted several over the course of the rest of the 1950s and the 1960s. However, every single appeal that they were filing ended up being denied for one reason or another. So they start bringing in as many people as they can to kind of come up with the best case that they possibly could so that they can really get him back to an appeal and see what's going on. So they bring in Dr. Paul Kirk, who is a forensic pathologist, And he starts examining the case and all of the evidence. And he's like, I'm going to be as impartial as possible. So he looks at the shepherd's home and everything at that crime scene. He looks at all the information, all the evidence, which has been sealed since the initial investigation. And he's the first person in this entire case and investigation that uses blood splatter analysis. And in doing so, he determined that the evidence showed Marilyn would have been hit repeatedly with an object. It would have caused droplets of blood to fly off the weapon. And so whoever had murdered Marilyn would have been covered in blood. But the most shocking information that Dr. Kirk brought to the table and discovered once using this 
was that whoever killed Marilyn would have been left-handed and Dr. Shepard was right-handed. Couple things. One, I am very both surprised and not surprised and disappointed that they didn't look at blood splatter as an evidence in, you know, in his defense. Because I know you mentioned during the trial, they talked about how, oh, well, he went in the lake and washed out the blood from his pants. But that just seemed really unrealistic to me. But two, the left-handed thing, that seems pretty big. It's definitely huge, especially the fact that, you know, at this point in time, I don't know exactly when it is. I believe we're in the 1960s, though. And so this is like seven years, at least, after Marilyn was murdered. And they're just now getting to a point in time where they're like, oh, let's try to really study this and determine what could have happened in this situation. There was a lot of negligence, for sure. The other thing that Dr. Kirk discovers is that the blood stain on the stairs, there was a large blood stain, and they initially had determined that it was probably due to, like, the murder weapon dripping, like they had, the person had left, the murderer had left, and blood from Marilyn had dripped, and so they didn't test it. But when Dr. Kirk tested it, he's like that blood was definitely type O and it was not Marilyn's and Dr. Shepard's blood was type A. So it at least indicates that a third person's blood is in this house. Yeah. And it's bonkers to me that they wouldn't have because they even state that it appeared that Marilyn had likely bit her attacker so much that it broke her teeth. Like that would cause a normal person to be like, oh, maybe they bled from it. Or even with an attack that violent, it's not uncommon for the attacker to harm themselves in the process. And so it's really unfortunate that they didn't test that out prior to Dr. Shepard's trial. Correct. One thing I will say too, so DNA evidence was not available at this point in time. It wasn't available until the 60s, like later on in the 60s. So they weren't able to test the DNA, but they were able to determine that the blood types did not match. Which was enough yeah. to point out that that type O was not belonging to either Marilyn nor Dr. Shepard. And so there are lots of things, including, like Abby said, those bite marks, which are a reason for a third person to be bleeding in the house that could it could have been. So they present all these things again, and his appeal is still denied. Jury, judge, everything. They're like, we are, the state's like, we're not taking this back. So in 1961, Dr. Shepard ends up getting a new lawyer because William Corrigan ends up dying. And so his new lawyer is Ethley Bailey, which not that I know much about Ethley Bailey other than this case, but I feel like he's really focused on getting justice for Sam and Marilyn. Not that William necessarily wasn't, but I just feel like a lot more things start to occur. So in April 1963, Bailey files a petition for a habeas corpus in federal court. And he's basing this off of the fact that prejudicial publicity before and during the trial violated his right to the due process of law. He did not have a proper trial in any way, shape, or form. He had a completely biased jury. They dismissed a lot of things that he was... Like, it was just... It was not handled appropriately, especially then the jurors' names and photos and everything was announced. That's just not... It was completely done inaccurately. So they end up going back to trial... And in 1964, after 10 years in prison, the United States District Court vacated the conviction of Dr. Sam Shepard. So he is now, his conviction was overturned. However, the state of Ohio did not agree. And so they immediately refiled charges of murder to go back after him. 
a little snippet. So while Dr. Shepard was in prison, he had actually been like communicating with people on the in the outside world, which was fine. And he ended up meeting and talking with a woman and being pen pals with a woman named Ariane. I don't even know how to say her name. Teban Joannis, Teban Joannis, something like that. It's a really long name who was a German divorcee. And once again, they had been communicating throughout most of his incarceration. So three days after he was released from jail, he ends up getting married to her. And so that's just like a fun little fact that I thought I'd throw in there. So after 10 years in jail, possibly being innocent he is released and within days he is pending a new trial again for the same thing in february of 1966 the high court heard all the arguments about the case they heard Ethley bailey arguing the attorney general arguing just everybody arguing and about three months later the Supreme Court reversed the Sixth Circuit and reversed Shepard's conviction on the grounds that the publicity surrounding the trial prejudiced Shepard's right to a trial by an impartial jury. Two days after, they determined that they were going to retry him for the murder of his wife. So they were like, okay, you are temporarily out. Let's discuss it. And then they're like, nope, we got to go back to trial. The second trial started on October 24th, 1966. This time, we're already starting off strong. The jury was sequestered in order to shield them from the media attention. So it's been 12 years since the murder occurred. So in theory, we are going to have some non-biased jury members because it's not as publicized at the moment. And so everybody comes back to testify. Sam Gerber, the coroner, comes back and testifies again about the weapon being a surgical instrument. Ethley Bailey, the new attorney for Sam, was like, okay, what surgical instrument? Can you identify the exact one? And Dr. Drew was like, we can't because we didn't find it, which immediately discredited his testimony because there's no way to prove without a doubt that it was a surgical instrument. Another interesting fact about this case is Susan Hayes, the woman that was really brought in basically to prove that Dr. Shepard was cheating on his wife, was not allowed to testify in this trial. So they kept her out. Dr. Kirk also testified about all the forensic evidence, the blood splatter analysis, everything. And he's like, the blood on Sam's pants was not Marilyn's. There's a lot of things that just are not matching up. One thing that I found interesting, though, too, about this case, well, about this specific trial, I guess, is that Dr. Sam Shepard didn't testify in this trial. And F- that was Effley Bailey's idea. He was like, you know, this could be a major risk. However, they twisted it every time you tried to speak last time. I feel like we should just keep you off the stand. because. But he understood that the jurors might think that he was unwilling because he was guilty or had something to hide. But he was like, the way that you acted in the first trial, like, it didn't make a great impression. They found your story hard to swallow. And he's like, I just don't want to, I don't want to test this again. So, like, you just stay out of it. So, his team is talking for him throughout this whole trial and they actually bring up a couple different individuals that they think could have been suspicious enough to bring the doubt like all of the guilt off of dr shepherd and they're like the first one is a man named richard eberling who was a window washer for the family they're like he super suspicious we should definitely check him out i didn't really find a whole lot of information about why they found him suspicious but it was brought up during the trial but nobody wanted to hear that they were like Probably not him. It's got to be Dr. Shepard. There's no other answer. But Effley Bailey also brought up Esther Hook, 
which if you remember in part one, I told you that when the murder first occurred and the first person Sam called was the mayor, Spencer Hook, which was Esther's husband. So apparently Esther had found out Marilyn was having an affair with Spencer and Esther got pissed and murdered Marilyn. That definitely seems suspicious. I like how infidelity keeps coming up in this case as well. Seems like it's a small town. Everybody's just kind of hooking up with whoever they find. (laughs) Apparently. Or maybe not. Maybe it's just all just small town rumors. I don't know. But it is interesting. Now, were either of these two O negative and left-handed? I don't know the answer to that. This is a great question, though. Effley Bailey actually ended up calling a bread delivery man to the stand because he had looked in the kitchen at one point and saw Marilyn drinking coffee with a distinguished older man. And he ended up identifying that man as Spencer. So they were at least interacting with each other. Marilyn and Spencer, well, Spencer, I guess at this point, but even before Marilyn had decided, like had claimed that they were just friends. They just got together sometimes. They just hung out. I don't know. I still find it weird that the mayor was the first person he called when he found his wife's dead body. That's a whole other thing that we can go back to. But Ethley Bailey brought Esther out, was talking with her, and he got her to admit that she ignited a coal fire in her fireplace on the morning of the murder, which she claimed that it was because it had been cold at night and gotten down to 69 degrees Fahrenheit. But Effley Bailey was trying to get her to say that because he wanted the jury to believe that she started the fire in order to burn her clothes and other evidence from the crime, which was interesting. Either way, all this evidence is presented. Once again, this trial does go quite a bit better than the first trial. It's not quite as sketchy. I feel like it also kind of helped because one, he had a new attorney looking at the case. But I feel like Effley Bailey really did his due diligence in getting all these different people together. And they had Dr. Kirk's testimony that they could bring in as well. And everybody kind of worked together to figure out what was going on and like actually get to the bottom of what happened to Marilyn the night that she was murdered. Yeah, it sounds like they're doing a great job bringing up more reasonable doubt than what was done in the first trial. Absolutely. And I think that they probably were able to understand that that's what was going to need to happen. Like in the first trial, they were probably blindsided with a lot of the things that the prosecution was coming up with because they were like, oh, this and this and this. But the prosecution also in this one wasn't allowed to bring up some of the stuff that they really tried to bury Sam, I guess. But now they were like, okay, well, now we know how to respond to this initial like claim or this claim or this accusation like they kind of had a better idea of what to expect i think and so i think that was overall helpful either way on november 16th 1966 dr samuel shepherd was acquitted on all charges after his acquittal he ended up trying to get his medical and surgical practice back together however i mean his name was drugged through the mud at this point it just wasn't working well and he actually ended up being sued for malpractice by a lot of people whether or not he was actually committing malpractice or people were just kind of frustrated because they knew who he was i don't know in the end his medical license was revoked and so he resorted to drinking heavily and kind of like spiraling and a lot of people were like it's probably because he was wrongfully convicted of the murder of his wife but also could have been for any reason he and his wife Ariane ended up divorcing in 1969 He then married a new woman named Colleen Strickland and actually switched careers. Abby, just out of curiosity, what career do you think our 
for a doctor Sam Shepard went to? Um, I guess maybe like criminal defense. No, he became a professional wrestler with the name Killer <laughs> Sam Shepard. If you're going to lose your life and your life's work because you were wrongfully convicted, I think it's fair to lean into it and make yeah. money off of it because what else are you going to do? That is so unfortunate. And I, that's like, I think one of the harder things when you hear about wrongful convictions, it's, you know, impossible or damn near impossible to really get back to where you could have been because your name, any Google search, they're going to find it. I guess, obviously, they weren't Google searching back then, but just word of mouth. And I've seen so many of those cases where even though it's all overturned, they've lost everything. And so it's really, yeah, it's kind of nice that he found some type of avenue to lean into. I just, I find it kind of funny that he switched from doctor to wrestler and named himself Killer Sam Shepard. But you're right. What was he supposed to do at this point? In the world of wrestling, I feel like that's a very good backstory to have. Oh, probably. I'm a little impressed with the fact that he came up with that idea. So like, good for him. (laughs) It appears that he did. So he spent the rest of his life which wasn't very long wrestling and drinking heavily apparently he would drink as much as two-fifths of liquor per day and on april 6 1970 he ended up dying at the age of 46 from liver failure however the case doesn't end here next we learn that a journalist learned about a man named richard eberling that name sound familiar to Abby? Was that one of the people they brought up as possibly being involved? Yes, that was the one that the team brought up. And they're like, he's suspicious. He was the one that had worked as the window washer for the Shepherd family before. And so this journalist learns that Richard had actually been sent to prison for murdering an elderly woman in her home. So a little background about Richard. He was born in Ohio, lived a rough life, didn't really have family. He had actually at one point admitted being attracted to Marilyn Shepard and would comment on like how good of a mother she was, would make comments about how tight her clothes were. And so a little bit about the murder that he was convicted for. So so in 1984, Ethel Mae Durkin was living in Lakewood, Ohio and ended up passing away in her home. And she had nobody that like no family that was taking care of her. It was actually Richard Eberling and another caregiver that was providing her care. And apparently she was incredibly wealthy. So they kind of got suspicious of Richard for one reason or another. And they ended up exhuming her body later on and found that her injuries didn't match what had initially been reported. And so Richard and actually another man were sentenced to life for the murder of Ethel. Now, this was in 84, so it would have been 30 years after Marilyn's murder. So it would have been possible, but then there was additional things to look into because Ethel's sister Myrtle had been murdered in 1962, and her other sister had died in 1970, uh, named Sarah. And so all three of them had been under Richard's care at the time of their deaths. Myrtle was the one that was the other sister who was murdered. She'd been found with her nightgown pulled up and her face had been beaten in which was very similar to the case of Marilyn so he was sent to prison to serve a life sentence this journalist that had like found out more information about him had met with Richard multiple times and talked to him and every time she met with him she was like he's really creepy and one of the times he was she was like asking him questions and he interrupted her and he goes 
why do women fight when they're being raped? Was one of the questions he asked her like mid conversation. My question is, why is he such a piece of shit? That's a fantastic question. However, this whole conversation and just the fact that the journalist was so interested in Richard ended up prompting the state to exhume Marilyn's body and finally test the DNA on a vaginal swab. Because if you remember, there was a lot of evidence that she'd possibly been raped. And so the testing was performed between 1997 and 1999, 45 years after her murder. And the DNA testing on the vaginal swab proved that the sperm did not belong to Dr. Samuel Shepard. Not that surprised there. Not at all. The blood stains on the walls of the bedroom and the stairs were tested and they were neither Dr. Shepard nor Marilyn. They were not able to officially prove that they belonged to Richard, but it did not exclude him, whereas it completely excluded Dr. Shepard. You know, it's nice that they're like actually looking into this post everything. I I do feel like a lot of times when we cover these kind of cases with wrongful convictions, everything becomes about that person and then getting them out of prison. And then the case just falls flat because it was so focused on that. And it's like, there's still a murderer out there who needs to be found. Well, and a lot of times, like you said, it's so focused on that. They don't even have another direction to go because the entire time they were just focused on this one person that they weren't gathering any other evidence. Yeah. And how often do we hear, you know, the first initial days, weeks, months to the murder is crucial for the investigation. So when they put their blinders on and don't even look at anyone else, you're losing out on so much evidence that could be there. Exactly. Well, we're lucky that in this case, that's not exactly what happened and that people were still fighting for the truth for both Sam and Marilyn's sake. And of course, though, I just want to throw one more thing in there. It was an investigative journalist who starts to uncover this stuff, not even police, it sounds like. No, it is an investigative journalist. I don't, to be honest, I mean, it's 45 years after her murder. I don't know exactly how many people would be around at this point in time the initial judge in the first trial was 70 something years old when that trial took place so he's most likely not around we already know his one defense attorney's not around it makes you wonder sam's not around makes you wonder how many people are actually around that would still be solving this case or wanting to solve it which is so sad because it's such a misjustice to Marilyn. it is a huge misjustice to Marilyn. it's also i mean if sam truly is as innocent it is a misjustice to him as well because I mean, his life was essentially ruined. His wife was murdered and then he was accused of it and spent 10 years in prison and then came out and had no idea what to do. And everyone hated it. Like, it's just not a great situation in any way. Something else that's super interesting is that I find super interesting. Apparently, at one point in time, Richard Eberlein had actually been arrested by police for unrelated charges. And this was not long after Marilyn's murder. But when they arrested him... They found two of Marilyn's rings in his possession. And when they asked him questions about it and asked him like if he had been there, like they did ask him about the murder. And he was like, I I didn't do it. I, I did cut myself in their house once, but I didn't do it. And they're like, we never asked if you cut yourself in their house. And then they went right back to thinking Dr. Shepard did it because Richard passed a polygraph test. And so they're like, well, he couldn't have been involved. Uh that's so frustrating. It It's beyond frustrating. I mean, they completely discounted any of it. And he was right there. They could have caught him right then. <laughs> yes, they could have. I hate to be the one to say this, but if Richard really is the one that murdered her and they let him go, you know, 
so many years later, three other women died. Two of them, they're pretty sure were him. One of them, I mean, it's possible. Like, it's just really sad to think about negligence on a police officer's part or the detective's part. And really the entire court system at this point, the whole state of Ohio dropped the ball in this situation. And it's really unfortunate for everyone involved. In 1997, Sam Reese Shepard, which is Chip, Sam and Marilyn's son, ended up filing a civil suit against Cuyahoga County on behalf of his father for wrongful imprisonment and had both of the bodies of Marilyn Shepard and Sam Shepard exhumed for DNA and forensic analysis. In 2000, there was an eight-week trial where a civil jury reconsidered all of the evidence and of Sam Shepard's guilt, everything, and how they argued that Richard Eberling could have been the killer and all of the different things. They ended up presenting a possible new murder weapon as well, thinking that the lamp that was on the nightstand by the beds could have been the thing that was used to murder Marilyn, which I find interesting because I would be curious to see what the lamp looked like that it was initially described as a claw-like surgical instrument. Makes you wonder if that was kind of a lie in the first place. Yeah, and I'm also wondering, I, how do you how do you miss that? <laughs> Great question. Apparently, the lamp was not in the bedroom when they when police arrived. So it was in the bedroom prior to the murder. Not in the bedroom after the murder. Where'd they find it? They never found it. Oh. The lamp was never found. Okay. that That's how they didn't notice. Okay. Yes. I was like, I'm just thinking about, you know, that aggressively, a murder with that amount of aggression, you would think it would be obvious on the murder weapon. But if it wasn't there, okay, that makes more sense. So that's pretty much the evidence that we have. That's, I mean, that's really... Is Richard... Is he dead now or at this point? So Richard Eberling actually ended up dying in 1998. So at the time of like our story and obviously now he is no longer alive. Anyways, Abby, I gave you a lot of information in these last three parts. What are your thoughts at the moment? I mean, it sounds like they need to be looking more into Richard. I don't know if they have any DNA left that they can test to actually connect it to him, but it'd be great if they could. Sounds like the family really got the rough end of the deal with everything that happened and obviously it was still impacting the son way later on in life. But yeah, that's just a sad story all around, really, especially since there's really no closure. The only upside is that Sam eventually got released and acquitted but he still went through hell before he got to that point. Absolutely. I mean, that took away so many years of his life up until the point that he died. It was just, I don't, I mean, it's hard to find a positive thing in this situation. Um, I don't have a whole lot of information about their son, Chip, but I mean, I know that he was still trying to get justice for his mom's murder and I really wish all the best for him, but I'm sure that this situation was just incredibly difficult, especially at the young age that he was at. So I presented a lot of information to all of you guys these last three weeks as well so if you guys have any questions comments anything go ahead and email us um message us on instagram or facebook and just kind of let us know your thoughts if you guys know of any cases that are wrongful convictions and then later on they actually catch the person that did it send us a recommendation because i would love to look into some of those and you can email us at the email erica just said thank you all so much thanks to listening to this week's episode of crime over coffee you can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee 
or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.